biology research is complex. The sample size of a biological data set is often too small to make confident judgments about the biological system that is being studied. During Jason Knight's PhD research, the RNA sequence data that he was studying was not significant enough to make strong conclusions about the gene regulatory networks that he was trying to understand. After working in academia, and then at Human Longevity Inc., Jason came to the conclusion that the best way to work towards biology breakthroughs was to work on the computer systems that enable those breakthroughs. He went to work at Nirvana Systems on hardware and software for deep learning. Nirvana was subsequently acquired by Intel. During this episode, we discuss how machine learning can be applied to biology today and how industrial research and development is key to enabling more breakthroughs in the future. The main lesson that I took away from this show is that while we've seen phenomenal breakthroughs in certain areas of health, like image recognition applied to diabetic retinopathy or applied to skin cancer, the challenges of reverse engineering our genome to understand how nucleic acids fit together into humans this kind of challenge is still pretty far out of reach, and improving the hardware used for deep learning will be necessary to tackle these kinds of informational challenges. Jason Knight is a staff algorithms engineer with Nirvana. Jason, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. It's a pleasure to be here. Your background has a lot of material that I want to cover, and you and I have had a number of conversations over the past month or so, and I'm hoping we can delve into a variety of some of the topics that we've talked about in our various conversations. Your work in machine learning started when you were a PhD student. You were looking at RNA sequences. Explain what you were doing during your PhD. Right. So my PhD was kind of uh, on both sides of the fence, both theoretical and kind of more applied. Um, on the theoretical side, uh, the idea is that um, a lot of uh, statistics, classical statistics, and then the machine learning, statistical machine learning that came about from that uh, has these kind of large sample assumptions where you assume uh, that you're going to get more data uh, over time or you have a large enough amount of data that you can uh, make these kind of asymptotic arguments uh, to say, well, you know, when I get enough data, then all these nice things will happen. Um, unfortunately, with, with medical data uh, and biological data, typically the you know, sample uh, collection process is, is rather expensive or difficult. And also the, the domain itself, the problem domain, is just such a complex, high-dimensional space that your sample size relative to the complexity of the problem is typically uh, much you know, smaller than you would like. So these asymptotic arguments uh, don't uh, hold as much water. And so the theoretical uh, work was basically assuming you have a small amount of samples, what is the best you can do with that? And what are the kind of theoretical guarantees you can make especially given that uh, it's human lives on the line, essentially when you're making these kind of predictions of uh, drug treatment outcomes and such like that. Uh, so that was the theoretical side. Um, you know, how can you work with small samples in this complicated domain? Uh, and so there's kind of a variety of techniques. That's not an uncommon scenario. There's Whether you're talking about human health or something that's far outside the, the realm of human health, there are 
plenty of problems with small sample sizes where nonetheless we would like to make predictions about them. What kinds of techniques can you use in that kind of domain? Right. So the the kind of um, two sides of the of the approach that we were taking, uh, one is that um, essentially using uh, statistical techniques, uh, primarily Bayesian techniques that uh, have really good um, kind of optimality properties uh, regarding their sample efficiency. So how much you're ex- how much information you're extracting from each sample, um, and there's even theoretical arguments that. Bayesian reasoning is optimal in, in, in some sense uh, for these uh, kind of, um, you know, approaches. And, uh, and so that's one, one piece is that extracting as much information you can, knowing that you're doing uh, the right thing with that information and, and, and combining it in the appropriate ways and being able to reason about the uncertainty that you get as a result of that. So that's, that's kind of the, uh, another big piece is the uh, having a, a notion of the uncertainty you get uh, is is critical, right? Because if you put in some data and you get a result, then you the next question you're going to ask is how good is that result, or how much should I expect it to, you know, matter to the patient, or how should I bet someone's life on it? Um, so that's that's the theoretical, or that's that part. The other part is that um, biology and and really any of these domains, like you mentioned, there's others, uh, lots of examples. Uh, you have typically lots of domain knowledge uh, that's not in your data per se. Uh, for example, biology, we know all this information about biological pathways and um, the hierarchical, you know, uh, nature of, of uh, nucleic acids and cells and tissues and organs and all these things. So uh, how can we take that prior knowledge is what we call it and, and encode that in a way, encode it into your model so that it constrains your analysis. So it improves your, uh, reduces the uncertainty with the limited amount of data you have. When you have that kind of situation where you can only come to a very uncertain judgment, like you come to a conclusion, but you are so uncertain about it, what is the practical application for that? Is it just something where you look at it and you say, okay, we can't necessarily act on this, but we can use this result as a clue to explore something else? The prediction of the algorithm... It's just one part, and it's the the uncertainty you have in that prediction is is almost as valuable as the prediction itself. Because when when you receive, uh, I mean, essentially, it's it's the same thing as if you're you're talking to a doctor and he tells you to do some treatment, then you're factoring in you know his credentials and and the accolades he has and 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 uh, what recommendations he has in terms of whether you know you want to follow his advice and whether you want to get a second opinion. And it's the exact same thing with a machine learning model is that if the uncertainty is too large, then you either need to collect more data, your model doesn't match reality, and so the, the data um, isn't informing or training the model uh, well. Uh, so you need to either change the model, collect more data, or maybe you're asking the wrong questions. You were modeling gene regulatory networks, and you were using Bayesian statistical models with advanced Markov chain Monte Carlo techniques. Can you give me kind of a summary for what exactly was the data set you were working with and what operations you were performing on it and what tools you were using? Right. So um, I think the probably the largest project was um, uh, expression data for RNA-seq data is what it's called. So so the cell, 
you can think of it as a, a machine or even a, a state machine. Um, and it has uh, free-floating RNA that is uh, ready to be translated into protein. And uh, if you measure the amount or quantity of these RNA st um, strands that are floating in the nucleus, then um, you can get a sense of what the current state of the machine, the cell, is. And uh, so luckily with modern sequencing techniques, you can measure all of these uh, RNA free-floating strands uh, at once uh, across either a bulk of population of cells or actually we did some single cell measurements as well. And the idea there is then given uh, a set of these measurements, uh, perhaps, um, well, in this case, what we did, uh, one was uh, cancerous patients of, of uh, so the, the the doctor notices a biopsy or a tumor. He goes into the biopsy, collects the tissue, does uh, this uh, sequencing analysis to get these expression data, and now you have a essentially a measurement of the internal state of the cell, and you want to determine from that measurement what type of cancer is this, what type of treatments we should be using for this particular type of cancer, uh, because cancer is really just an umbrella term for for many different diseases, and that's where the whole precision or personalized medicine initiative comes in. And so the idea here is to um, be able to use this high dimensional data, uh, these expression measurements to uh, make predictions on what type of disease this is um, with these, you know, 20,000 measurements uh, for, for each uh, sample. And so the, the basic idea is to um, build a hierarchical statistical model, which what, what that means is you, uh, you in the process of measuring these cell environment variables, uh, the, the expressions, you that there's a, a a step of processes that are uh, undertaken to actually derive these measurements, and you can model each of those steps statistically um, by the underlying physical processes. And in doing so, uh, you can then um, uh, encode the the noise and and all these other. Uh, transformations that are happening to the real data and then by uh, now you have your real data that you've measured and you want to basically infer backwards to the real state of the cell from these uh, projections if you will of the cell's internal state and so that's where the Markov chain Monte Carlo comes in is that these models describe the kind of forward process if you will uh, from real you know free-floating RNA in the cell to the measurements you take and you want to go the back. You want to go backwards uh, and and quantify the uncertainty you have as you go backwards. And so Markov chain Monte Carlo is one way to do that. Uh, go from data to basically uh, infer the distribution of what you think the real uh, state of the cell was when you took those measurements. This is back in 2015. What were the tools that you were using back then for doing Markov chain Monte Carlo? Um, well, it's actually relatively the same as it is today. Uh, there are some kind of domain-specific languages and inference engines, uh, such as uh, JAGS, and uh, and STAN was kind of just recently coming out. Uh, these are packages where you can kind of write this uh, these statistical models in a, a DSL, and then uh, they have their own like custom purpose inference engines that you point it to your data in a you know, certain format, and then uh, it'll run the MCMC for you. Unfortunately, uh, some of the uh, specific goals that we were trying to get at, uh, specifically the kind of uh, genetic regulatory network uh, topology, if you will, 
Um, it's a very discreet, uh, highly peaked energy landscape, uh, which is traditionally kind of a, a death knell for MCMC techniques. And so we had to experiment with um, some uh, algorithms from the physics literature, uh, specifically kind of deriving from something called the Wang-Landau method, uh, which is essentially a method for uh, moving around in these high-dimensional, highly peaked energy landscapes uh, without getting stuck in local minima or, or you're minimizing the amount of, that you get stuck. And so there's it's kind of these auxiliary variable methods. So it kind of remembers where it's been and tries to kind of push itself to do new things. It's, you can actually make analogies with, uh, uh, you know, kind of human beings. And like, if you love to travel to Paris, for instance, then you, you have to think to yourself, well, I love Paris, but maybe there's other cities that are, you know, even better out there. So you kind of have to counteract your desire to go to Paris with the fact that you've been there a lot. And so it's this explore, exploit uh, kind of trade-off as well. Okay, so I want to keep moving through your uh, work history. Uh, I mean, you started as an electrical engineering student, and then you did a PhD in this basically computer science and biology intermixed stuff with a lot of emphasis on biology. So I, I think of that as moving up the stack from in electrical engineering. And then you moved up the stack even further when you went to work at HLI, which is explicitly focused on biology and human longevity. And then after that, we'll get to Nirvana, where you worked on, where you are working on chips for deep learning. And this is, sounds like getting back to your roots of electrical engineering. But touching on HLI, Human Longevity, Inc. Explain what HLI does. Right. So Human Longevity, um, their goal is to essentially amass the world's largest database of whole human genome sequences. And and in so doing, collecting this database of not only the the uh, human genomes, but also the you know the phenotype data associated with that. So how healthy this person is, when they got heart disease, how did they respond to this treatment, et cetera, et cetera. And it's and then combining that database with uh, machine learning scientists and researchers like myself, uh, then trying to untangle the represent or the the uh, the structure there and and. And, and build models, predictive models to you know, make use of this data. Uh, and, and then that feeds back to, um, their kind of clinical, uh, work, which is they have this, uh, the health nucleus is what they call it, uh, where you can pay a lump sum of money, go in, get a full body MRI scan, get your whole human genome sequenced. I believe they'll do some expression measurements as well and, deck scan and a whole bunch of other things and it's like a complete modern day physical um but then using all that data then if they notice anything or you later get sick then they can cross-reference that data and then use all the data in the background to make uh really state-of-the-art predictions on treatments and uh, uh different disease uh, etymologies and stuff like that the folks in silicon valley who talk a lot about longevity like Peter Thiel or Craig Venter, who is part of uh, HLI, runs HLI, or Larry Page. These people have really turned my understanding of debates around human longevity and, and death uh, on on their head. They they seem to characterize 
human death not as much as an inevitability, but as just a set of symptoms that may lead to an expiration date on humans. Uh, those symptoms, you know, can be isolated and perhaps dealt with. What are some of the fundamental aspects around human health that your opinions evolved on or changed when you were at HLI? Yeah, actually, um, I'm not sure if I was at HLI or slightly before, but uh, my kind of epiphany moment, uh, kind of in line with yours, was I watched a TED Talk by Aubrey de Grey, um, and uh, he's a researcher oh, in yeah. the UK, and uh, he, he made a great case for why uh, aging should be considered a disease and, and death should be considered a you know, disease state, essentially. Um, and... And in such a logical way that it's it was hard to refute that, uh, and I just never really thought about it explicitly before. But after hearing that, I was like, "Oh, that makes complete sense." And so that really, um, then when I saw, I guess the HLI kind of job advertisements, it really resonated with me um, in terms of, uh, yeah, what you know, how can there's not a whole lot of better things to work on. I believe this is also one of uh, Elon Musk's. Um, you know, central challenges, though this one he decided not to work on. Uh, one of the few, I guess. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> Yet, yeah. Tunnels first. Tunnels first. <laughs> and uh, and so, yeah, I really, uh, I think it's it's an excellent, uh, audacious goal. And um, uh, the problem is biology, the, the deeper you look, the more uh, twists and turns she reads for <laughs> you. So it's, it's a, but that's part of the fun of it is it's just such a, amazingly complex and fascinating uh, system. That's that's what I've always found interesting about it. You know, I, I did biology in school for a while before switching to computer science, and I love the fact that biology is such a more humbling field than computer science. Computer science is always like, you know, we'll find a solution to this. We built this system. We can build another system on top of it. It'll be better. It'll be faster. And biology is this slow, arduous dissection of something that we just don't understand. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely humbling is, is a good way. But it's also interesting because there's, you can essentially, um, you know, since it is designed, you know, outside of human hands, uh, then there are lots of things you can learn from it uh, and apply those back to computer science even. Like uh, the distributed kind of modular systems. I mean, that's biology's bread and butter. Uh, so we're, we're really just, you know, playing at the kids table, uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, orchestrating complex processes, uh, through mod, you know, across very noisy channels and, uh, and, and designing robust systems in the face of these, uh, you know, complex and noisy domains. Speaking of which, you left HLI to work at Nirvana, which is a company that's building a platform for deep learning. Explain what that means. What's a platform for deep learning? Yeah, well, actually, if I could take a step back, so the, the kind of the reason I left, left HLI uh, is, is I um, basically the, the complexity of biology was just is I thought that having large enough data set would be enough. Uh, and maybe it is, you know, there's still lots of great people working on it. But I, I feel like the what's needed now in the field is, is more you know, stronger machine learning technologies. Um, and so that's why I was really drawn to Nirvana because they're really pushing the, uh, 
the boundaries of, of what you can do in terms of um, enabling infrastructure for data scientists. And so it's that's why uh, I want to be a part of this. And yeah, so, so Nirvana is kind of doing the full stack or uh, was and, you know, continues to inside of Intel. Um, so they're developing a deep learning specific hardware uh, to enable, you know, new types of network topologies that have never been done before. And then on top of that, a software infrastructure to, you know, enable these uh, experimentation of these, you know, new larger uh, models. And then also the cloud infrastructure to abstract away the details and allow people to you know, use this hardware without having to install it in their chassis themselves. Let's walk through some of these aspects of what you've worked on in Nirvana. Nirvana has something called Neon, which is a reference deep learning framework for high performance on hardware. So at the bottom of the stack, we have actual hardware that is running computation at the top of the stack, we have our application-level code. That's Spark or TensorFlow or Python or whatever you're talking about. Where in this stack between the application-level and the hardware-level does this Neon reference framework sit? Right, so Neon is is uh, designed to be at the same level as uh, TensorFlow or, or Keras, um, uh, or somewhere around there. So the, the user, the data scientist... Would directly, you know, import Neon in their Python script, and then um, use those uh, primitives and building blocks to build up their deep learning topologies. Okay, and what exactly does it give them? Originally, Neon was um, its claim to fame is, is its performance. Um, so, still in benchmarks by Facebook and others, um, the, the performance of Neon on GPUs is is still unmatched, uh, even by NVIDIA's own uh, CUDNN libraries. Um, and that's from some serious optimization work uh, done by some others here uh, that I that I claim you know, no ability to do myself. Um, and then now as we're, we're moving further, you know, uh, uh, into the future, we realize that um, deep learning is moving so fast that uh, that it's it's quickly becoming apparent that the the main um, uh, workflow for for data scientists in the future will be less and less about building new network topologies from the the core building blocks that they're doing they're, that are being used right now, convolutions and gems and such. But rather, it'll be more stitching together pieces of existing architectures and uh, reusing those uh, and allowing data scientists to move up the layers of abstraction. Uh, so that's one thing we see moving into the future um, and, and, and really enabling data scientists to do that in a, a seamless way is, is one thing we're looking at here. Um, so, so yeah, really looking at how we can build composable systems for deep learning uh, that enable data scientists to move higher up the abstraction. And, and you're also seeing this from, you know, TensorFlow with their recent announcement of, um, the, the layers API and the integration of Keras, but we think uh, that can be taken even further. So we're really excited to see what we can do uh, in terms of making data scientists, uh, empowering them that much more. And we've seen this firsthand because we we do customer engagements as well. So I was lucky enough to be part of uh, one uh, that was starting right as I joined, actually, and um, really seeing firsthand 
how the interaction of the you know, data scientists, our, our team, and and the customer uh, work together, and and the way that these deep learning models are you know iteratively built, and and the abstractions you need, like all that feeds directly in to you know what we need from deep learning frameworks ourselves. So we dog food a lot internally. When you talk about a data scientist from Facebook, for example, they import Neon and it somehow makes their code more performant. What is it doing? Is it is it changing the order of their bytecode instructions, or what exactly is it doing to improve the the performance of their code? Right. So it's it's uh, essentially a compiler, um, and so uh, it it does all the kind of things a compiler would do, but but focused at the tensor matrix linear algebra um, type abstractions rather than, you know, typical LLVM or Clang where it's rearranging memory loads and stores. Here we're looking at the memory usage patterns and reusing memory buffers for intermediate values that are no longer live in the computation, um, uh, fusing kernels together, um, which is similar to... Um, I guess fusion and, and kind of functional programming languages like Haskell and their vector operations, um, uh, which prevents, you know, reduces the amount of memory loads and, and saves you need. Um, additionally, uh, memory layout optimization. So the way you actually lay out a tensor in memory, uh, is very important for performance because of cache locality and how you're pulling data in and doing the, the tiling of the, the matrix multiplies on the back end. Uh, so you can get uh, either really great performance wins or really, you know, bad performance losses, you know, if you're not considering that carefully. And so, yeah, a whole slew of techniques along those lines. Yeah, this is this is such a new field for me, these lower-level optimizer thingies. Like, uh, I did a show about Apache Arrow a while ago, which is this really important project that basically just reorganizes your your in-memory representation so that you can share data more easily between distributed frameworks you know like you you don't uh, you know today maybe you don't have the same layout for the way that your data is represented in Hadoop versus the way it's represented in spark versus the way it's represented in in your Python code um, and so you can get really good performance mileage out of making better data sharing or just like you said data layout um, because it's just it can be more performant uh, so there's also yeah, this so nirvana- what, what, oh go ahead oh yeah what if I could interject one one interesting kind of trade-off there is that um, you know this is nothing new but there's there's always a trade-off between uh, kind of how much you can compile and how much flexibility you give to the user um, and this is the same as in you know programming languages as well, uh, where users want more flexibility with things like dynamic languages and you know Ruby on the far end. Um, but you you essentially give up performance uh, when you when you request or require that flexibility. And so, actually, in deep learning, we're starting to see this where uh, you have these dynamic uh, topologies where the topology of the neural net actually depends on the data input itself. And so it makes compilation difficult uh, because the, the topology is changing between data inputs. And so we're looking at uh, different ways of, of allowing data scientists to have this flexibility 
while also getting the performance at the other end. So that I think that's another uh, area where I think you know Nirvana and Intel can really uh, make a big splash because you know, this is something that uh, is not really being handled right now. You have kind of the two extremes with uh, TensorFlow on one and Hand and Torch and PyTorch and Chainer and Dilab on the other, and nothing really kind of giving you the best of both worlds with something like uh, you know Julia where through JIT compilation, you can uh, essentially uh, regain a lot of the flexibility while also retaining much of the performance if you make the right set of trade-offs. There's also Nirvana Engine, which is hardware that's optimized for deep learning. It's an ASIC, which is an application-specific integrated circuit, A-S-I-C, that is custom-designed and optimized for deep learning. When hardware is catering to deep learning what does that hardware do that's different right so uh, on one hand there's kind of the the again the the trade-off i was mentioning the the flexibility and performance trade-off and so uh that's one axis you can pull on or one you know thread you can tug on to regain or gain a lot of performance is is by specializing your hardware for for particular sets of operations uh, within limits, then you can retain some of the flexibility, but but really maximize performance. Um, another is that uh, because of the uh, ability for deep neural nets to to um, retain pretty much all their performance, you know, depending on the topology, with reduced precision, uh, then we're also using uh, something called FlexPoint, which uh, is a different way of encoding. The data in uh, on actual the the hardware and doing the computations in hardware, and so one of the typical ways is you just go lower from FP32, which is what most people use on GPUs today, to something like FP16, which is some what some people have been using uh, lately on NVIDIA hardware, um, but not not a whole lot of work there. Uh, but but um, it's clear that's the way of the future. But the problem is FP16, you start getting into problems with training. And so FlexPoint uh, essentially allows you to retain all of the um, the integer bits of FP32 while having a single shared exponent among all the uh, elements in a tensor. Um, and so we've done you know statistical analysis and and validation and and um, essentially the tensors the exponents on having an exponent on each weight of the neural net is somewhat redundant. Um, because you can essentially bound them kind of in an exponent regime and share that exponent among all the elements. So that's another kind of um, optimization that we're we're uh, applying. Uh, and then we have to support that on the software side. So that's another reason to have uh, the Nirvana graph to abstract these things away from frameworks and so they don't have to worry about them. So what's the connection between Neon, the reference deep learning framework, and and the engine, the ASIC that you custom built and optimized for deep learning. Right. So, so Neon is yeah the top end for users. You've got your hardware on the bottom, and then in the middle is where the Nirvana Graph come, project comes in. So Nirvana Graph is basically uh, LLVM inspired um, kind of architecture for solving this many-to-many problem, where you have many front ends here frameworks instead of computer languages like in the LLVM case. And then you have many backends uh, or hardware targets, 
and you want to support, you know, all connections. And so we essentially pin uh, the many-to-many problem with one intermediate representation, uh, where which is what we call the you know, Nirvana graph IR. And so that is similar to the LLVM IR. It's an intermediate representation for representing matrix computations at a, a reasonably low level. I mean, the user, we don't expect users to write this themselves. This is what the framework emits, like Neon emits Nirvana Graph IR, and then that is taken by a compiler and then subsequently lowered to a, a you know, given uh, ISA or instruction set. We've got a show coming up about LLVM, so luckily this this is like just in time I sort of understand what an intermediate representation is and am gradually getting an idea for why LLVM is a big deal, but could you just shed some light on that? Explain what an intermediate representation is and explain in a little more detail where you are drawing inspiration from the LLVM world, LLVM being what was originally called low-level virtual machine this is but it's turned into this ecosystem of compiler tools that's widely used in places like swift and rust uh, and i'm sure uh, lots of other places but yeah give some color on on this llvm analogy and the intermediate representation definition if you think about uh someone who wanted to write a new computer language or uh you know make some new hardware then um in the past, what you would have to do is essentially just write it all from scratch yourself uh, or uh, for the, the language designer. Or for the hardware designer, um, you would then have to find all the languages you want to support, find all their different compilers, and then figure out what their internal structures look like and their assumptions and, and then match your um, you know, back-end firmware to each one of those. So it's this, it's this um, daunting kind of proposition. Uh, LLVM uh, was started as a PhD project to basically, uh, and I, I don't believe it was the first, but the, it was definitely the most successful. And and, uh, and and the idea is that by introducing the right abstraction, um, which is a hardware-independent representation of computing that's low enough level that um, pretty much any language, you know, Turing complete language can map onto. But it's it's high enough level that it's hardware independent, so then you can um, you can have any backend compile or sorry any front end language like Haskell, Julia, Rust. Um, I'd imagine actually there's probably hardly any languages that don't have an LLVM backend at this point. Um, maybe L PHP or something, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean they've got their own C plus plus, and then you can go from C plus plus to LLVM. So there you go. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so then you have all these languages now. All they need to do is just go to LLVM, uh, IR, which is this hardware independent assembly code, if you will. And then now you can then reuse all the existing backends, um, without having to write them all yourself. So it, it, it's basically a win-win for everybody as long as you can get those abstractions cracked, which that's really the key because the, Finding the right balance of intermediate representation is, is the challenging part. And so the deep learning analogy is, you know, uh, a direct analogy over in that if you want to write a new framework, uh, that, you know, it really focuses on dynamicism or recurrent nets, you know, specifically or, 
maybe neural uh, network architecture or uh, neural uh, memory architectures, um, you know, then beforehand you'd have to, you know, consider writing all these CUDA kernels yourself or interfacing with CUDNN and FPGAs and all the accelerators that are coming out, uh, which is, you know, difficult to say the least. Whereas now you can target one intermediate representation um, and then you get all these backends for free. And same with hardware vendors as well. And we're definitely not the only ones to have this uh, uh, idea that, um, and, and so Google actually, uh, the TensorFlow um, Dev Summit uh, released uh, the XLA project open source. And so that's kind of uh, their take on it from the other vantage point of the framework author. And they want to have multiple, you know, accelerators that, um, that work with TensorFlow. And so their intermediate representation is basically XLA. Um, and, uh, but, but they aren't really focused on the, the ecosystem as much, uh, upwards necessarily, only downwards. Uh, whereas we're focused on really building this ecosystem, both for f- lots of frameworks and lots of backends. I want to get to TensorFlow in a moment, but let's talk a little bit more wrapping up the career chronology. So Intel recently acquired Nirvana, where you work. What are the synergies between Nirvana and Intel? I mean, the hardware synergies are are definitely um, clear and apparent so that uh, you know, Intel is unparalleled for its expertise in uh, silicon fabrication, uh, lithography, chip design, high performance chips, you know, these kind of things. Um, and so we've, we've already, uh, gained a lot of benefit, uh, from having access to their experts, uh, across the board. Um, it's been interesting to compare, you know, we work with external contractors for part of our chip design. And then we compare notes with, you know, what Intel internal people would say about the same thing. And oftentimes they're, they're quite a bit different and, uh, Intel has caught a lot of mistakes and such that external contractors make. And, and so it's, it's, uh, it's been really great there having all that support. And then of course, access to the, the fabs, um, you know, is obviously something that we're very excited about. Uh, then, on the software side, um, Intel really has a, a long history of, of um, doing an excellent job of making things run fast for everybody on Intel architectures. And I think that's one thing I didn't appreciate before joining Intel is that um, that's part of their like uh, really great strategy for Intel uh, CPUs is that yeah, they make great CPUs, but they also have these software teams behind the scenes that are kind of quietly making contributions to the Apache, you know, HTTP server or Nginx or, uh, you know, whatever it is, just all these open source projects that they make little tweaks here and there to optimize for Intel architectures. And, and then lo and behold, when, when, uh, an Antec or some hardware, uh, you know, reviewer, looks at performance across, you know, the, the workloads that people care about, then Intel's faster, not only because the hardware is great, but because they've done all these software optimizations behind the scenes, essentially. Uh, and so I think that that kind of fits with uh, what we're trying to do here is just uh, make deep learning faster for everyone and, uh, and, and enable kind of a new, well, the new wave of, of you know, artificial intelligence that we're seeing 
uh, really take hold. And I mean, it's in everyone's pocket every time you talk to Siri or Alexa or OK Google. I want to understand a little bit more about where we're at in terms of the chip industry, where you know these different players are, because I know that you know there was this big shift in the chip market, the way the chip market worked as a result of mobile, and it seems like we're going through another one of these massive transformations because of the machine learning specific chips. And as I understand the history, the GPU companies stumbled into a gold mine basically because they initially made these GPUs for gaming and it turned out that Wall Street and every other high performance computing outlet wanted to do the same sort of matrix calculations that GPUs were originally intended for for games. And then this machine learning revolution happened and GPU companies began reaping even more rewards because again these are like matrix calculations you're doing. Can you give some more color on the history of high performance chips and where the different players sit today? Yeah, I can try. Uh, <laughs> um yeah, I understand it's, it's a big question. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's a lot of um, it, it's interesting. Hardware f- also follows the kind of cyclical uh, bundling and unbundling uh, cycles that software. Um, I don't know if you could quite call it bundling and unbundling, but it's basically like. Uh, although I think Moore's law has kind of uh, taken that and, and added a, another. Uh, you know, dimension of, of change on it. So essentially, you saw this kind of proliferation of, of add-on device cards, uh, and I guess the, the 90s and maybe early 2000s of, of you know, uh, you can buy a sound card from Sound Blaster and video cards from Voodoo and ATI and all these companies. And, um, uh, yeah, and I, and, and, and really, as Moore's law made it just cheap to throw more transistors on a single die, then you see a lot of this, uh, a lot of these, um, silicon IPs, which were traditionally discrete things, uh, essentially just bundling more and more onto the processor itself or the north, first the north bridge and then the processor itself. And so, um, like sound card industry is, you know, uh, been largely subsumed by just you know, the, the single Northbridge chip on your, your, your motherboard. And, and, and then that's all moving to the system on a chip, uh, systems. And, um, but it, it, it's interesting though, that the, the one factor that seems to fight against that is when, when with something like gaming, you have, uh, or now with deep learning, you have just a strong enough pull from industry to continue to want more and more die space that, it makes sense to have this separate uh, card for these specialized applications. And then now that it's becoming so exciting uh, for the applications, um, it's actually, uh, yeah, it's even like growing at such a, a rate. And so, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, uh, well, and then, then you have to overlay this with the kind of cloud and edge device uh, like, like you were talking with Peter Levine about the end of cloud. And, uh, and so that whole discussion also needs to kind of overlay here in terms of how much deep learning computation is going to happen at the edge versus in the cloud. And then there's a the whole training versus inference side of things. 
how much training are you going to be able to do on your edge device? How much training do you want to do on your edge device? Um, so, so that's, I, I think, uh, I probably just kind of illustrated more questions than answers, but hopefully <laughs> I, I, there, that, that's part of the exciting reason why it's so exciting working in this field. Cause there's so many factors at play yeah. and, uh, and there's so much at, at stake in a good way. Like the, you know, the, the possibilities and opportunities are just gargantuan. So it's really exciting. So you and I were both at the TensorFlow Dev Summit, and it was pretty cool. There was a lot of futuristic stuff on display, and I thought it was a great encapsulation of why this field is so exciting. You know, you see people presenting stuff like, hey, we built a really good way to identify uh, you know, skin diseases uh, with using only machines, and they do a, as good of a job as dermatologists. Or you know, we've got a great way of identifying uh, diabetic retinopathy, and uh, there are all kinds of presentations like that, as well as deeply technical presentations. Um, I was there on a press pass, which is uh, has been an unexpected benefit of doing software engineering daily, and I got pulled into this little press meeting that included Jeff Dean and I was just totally surprised you know, I didn't expect that to happen but there were other people on the TensorFlow team there and we got to ask questions to the team so I asked Jeff Dean if there were hardware limitations for deep learning this is in retrospect an extremely naive question I was just thinking like oh you know uh can't we just distribute everything across like a spark cluster and like no problem you know we could process all this data it doesn't really matter and he was like yes of course there are hardware limitations and he said he gave the specific example of training google translate he said they could only use one sixth of the total corpus of data they had which is still obviously a ton of data but can you give me better picture for why there are hardware constraints in deep learning maybe this is a naive question but you know why can't google just distribute all of their data and process all of it is it, it, it where where are the hardware limitations there there's a there's a number of them um i think it all uh comes back down to the fundamental training procedure of, of deep learning which is back propagation um and stochastic gradient descent uh, so the idea is that you've got this large training corpus and you've got this large function approximator with uh, tens of millions or even tens of billions, I think, is the latest uh, paper I saw uh, of, of parameters that you need to train. Um, and uh, and you basically initialize them randomly, uh, all these millions of parameters, and then you slowly nudge them in the direction uh, that you want them to go. But the key is, is that you nudge them in uh, by using small batches called mini batches of your data. Um, and the problem is, is that uh, traditionally, you know, deep learning arose with a grad student on his laptop or, or desktop um, and doing these mini batch updates uh, one at a time sequentially um, using about, you know, a hundred examples at a time. And the problem is that if you use too many examples, uh, it doesn't train because your, your gradients aren't noisy enough to kind of push you around in the energy landscape. But if you use too little, then they're too noisy and you don't get enough signal from your data. Um, and you're, you're kind of just spinning around in circles, if you will. Um, so the problem is, is that now 
okay, you've got a data center of, of servers, you know, great. Uh, so each one of these can individually process these mini batches, but then now you have the question of how do you combine these together? And, uh, that's a non-trivial problem. Um, and, and the, the difficulty comes from, uh, a number of factors, but, but a lot of times it just doesn't work. Like you, you can't just throw more computation at it in a distributed fashion and then have it, um, have it still converge to the right answer. And that's one of the kind of fascinating areas of deep learning is that training these algorithms is still, uh, very much of a dark art and that, uh, you know, we don't have a whole lot of theoretical guidelines in terms of why some hyperparameters work and why some don't. Uh, and, and similarly, when you try to distribute this, um, we don't have theoretical guidelines for why or how you should combine these together. There's lots of, you know, great work, uh, out of lots of research groups on different asynchronous and synchronous combination techniques, but it's essentially just a, um, uh, yeah, the, the optimization itself of deep learning networks is uh, finicky enough that it makes the the computation challenges that much more difficult because you can't just throw parallel hardware at the problem. And so one way is you get individual cards that are faster. So that's you know obviously what uh, everyone's trying to do because that's the kind of straightforward answer. But the the research answer is that you know nobody really knows what the right approach is for doing things in distributed setting for training. So I know we're nearing the end of our time. I have a lot of questions I wasn't able to get to, but how do you use TensorFlow at Intel and or, or Nirvana? So we, like I mentioned earlier, we, we try to dog food as much as possible. Uh, so we mainly use Neon uh, in our customer engagements. Uh, and we've had customers from healthcare, uh, finance, automotive, biotech, um, uh, government, uh, startups, Fortune 500 companies, and uh, and everyone's been uh, quite pleased with Neon and how it enables their data scientists to get up and running. Um, we we may not have all the bells and whistles of something like TensorFlow, uh, and so for 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 certain customer engagements, we leave it on the table for using uh, TensorFlow when when a certain you know use case requires it. But uh, in general, we've we've enjoyed using Neon, and that feedback loop of dog fooding has been really helpful for us. I see. So so you were at the TensorFlow Dev Summit sort of just looking at the the scope of machine learning and, and deep learning rather than specifically looking for applications of TensorFlow. I mean, so I guess the, the one reason I was at the summit was um, now that we're moving more to kind of developing the chip or, or getting it out there soon and and wanting customers to use it then uh and, and especially as a part of intel we want to support users where they are um and and draw them you know to where we want them to be over the long run um and so so yeah we want to support uh tensorflow and, and other frameworks uh, as well so so that was uh what my discussions were there uh with people was was you know what does this look like and and uh, luckily, with uh, the XLA layer, like I mentioned earlier, uh, it looks like uh, uh, the the interop there is is a, a pretty nice story. So I think we're all happy with what how things are looking for the future here. Oh, awesome! So uh, to bring things full circle, as you have made the transition from doing 
basically biology research into the lower level chip development framework development are you becoming more optimistic or have your opinions changed about the opportunities for deep learning and biology oh yeah definitely more optimistic um in fact i was engaged in a a uh a nucleic acid sequence prediction problem here um, for a customer engagement and uh, seeing what can be done with uh, the the right hardware, uh, software, and uh, data sets on biological sequences was was um, exciting beyond my wildest dreams, really. Uh, I was actually skeptical going into it because, uh, you know, traditionally biology just scorns anyone who tries to come in with too much hubris on on a challenge and and i thought our our uh, targets were really uh audacious but but um lo and behold over the course of the project we made significant inroads and really exceeded my expectations so i think i think uh if anything uh deep learning and biology have uh it's it's, it's almost a match made in heaven at, at some levels of, of, of kind of the more fundamental, uh, nucleic acid kind of prediction sequence prediction, because you have these very high dimensional inputs and you want to learn a whole lot of things about them. And, and, uh, and with images, you know, it's, it's clear to see this is a picture of a puppy. Uh, with, with nucleic acid sequences, it's much more difficult to say, um, you know, hmm, what, what is this telling you? You know, and we have, Lots of uh, ways of, of approaching that problem from, you know, kind of classical, uh, uh, even text alignment uh, algorithms and, and statistical models like hidden Markov models. But uh, it, it's pretty clear to me that deep learning is a fits that sweet spot really nicely of generating its own representational features and building up the abstraction levels, which is exactly what's needed for the sequence analysis. And, and that feeds directly into um, you know, variant analysis and personalized or precision medicine. So I, I'm really excited to see this, uh, space evolve. And, um, uh, and companies like, uh, Deep Genomics out of Toronto are, uh, are evalu- or, you know, that's their target is, is this exactly. Um, so I'm really excited to see, uh, what, what they're going to be up to over the next couple of years. So, so the analogy here, when you're looking at RNA sequences and trying to understand what those sequences actually mean is that basically like looking at binary of a computer program and trying to guess what the higher level code actually means yeah that's that's a good analogy yeah the the uh instead of binary it's, it's you've got four uh, levels of, <laughs> right the ACTG uh, <laughs> and uh and so yeah you're literally just reading off the the hex dump of life instructions <laughs> and uh and you're trying to interpret these and how they interact with each other uh, across several different domains of time and space and uh, and and organization and um, uh, yeah it's yeah it's it's uh but that's why it's so exciting right because it's it's um, you're literally reading the blueprint and and uh, ISA of life <laughs> yeah because. God, if we, if you know, the 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 better we get at understanding this, and we when we can build higher level tools and let the biologists actually be doing productive work without learning Spark, you know, like I've done 
shows with biology people where they're like, yeah, and then I learned Spark. And I'm like, you are a biologist. You should not have to learn Spark. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it also gets really exciting uh, when you consider the generative uh, models as well. Uh, so deep learning, you know, a lot of what most people see is is the, the kind of prediction classification type style of, you know, this it predicted that a puppy's in my picture or it predicted what I just told, asked my phone to do. But um, uh, the, the generative adversarial networks and the variational autoencoders have shown some really uh, great work in terms of uh, being able to generate novel uh, either proteins or sequences, um, more on the small molecule area. But, uh, but when you think about applying this to, to DNA or RNA, then that's where it gets really exciting is, you know, okay, dial me in a, an RNA that does this. Uh, and has these properties, and then you just kind of generate example strands, and then you can, you know, synthesize these in mass, and then test them against a, a broad slew of things in your cloud biology laboratory. So I, I think the sky is the limit here. Oh my god, this is so exciting! Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and, and any any timeline predictions? Like, when does it start to get really weird? Um, I guess I guess it's pretty weird already. Like, pretty pretty exciting already. It's so hard to predict what's where we're going to be in five or ten years. It's like impossible. I yeah, I think. My, okay, I guess one prediction is I think. Uh, yeah, the biology. Well, and, and and the problem is like biology or not problem, but you know, crazy thing is that biology is the the piece that I know about, um, and so I'm really excited about that. But you can imagine that for every domain that's out there, like they have these core problems that you know they haven't been able to solve, you know, with computers. And possibly they can, you know, have a new tactic at attacking them now. And so, so like biology is just one microcosm of example. I mean, it's a big, very profound one, but it's like as deep learning propagates into all types of industries, it's like, you know, software is eating the world, but machine learning is also going to eat the world behind it as part of software. Um, and, and deep learning is probably going to be a large part of that or will be a large part of that. So, so yeah, I think, uh, well, and my prediction is that those propagations out to industries will, uh, they're not as sexy as artificial general intelligence and AGI, uh, which, you know, most people don't really fully realize that the, the question answer bots that we really want, you know, out of, okay, Google or Siri or Alexa, um, you know, for those to be fully like where we want them to be requires AGI. And yeah, we'll have a, a good amount of utility out of them, but um, AGI will be the last domino to fall. Like it'll definitely propagate to these industries first. Uh, but that's just my meaningless two cent prediction. So, <laughs> All right. Well, uh, really fascinating stuff. I could talk to you for a couple hours longer, but uh, I think we'll wrap it up here. Jason, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been a real pleasure getting to know you, and I uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thanks you, Jeff. And actually, if I could make a quick mention, uh, we are hiring here at Nirvana Intel. Uh, and oh, so, yeah, for sure. Uh, and anyone who's interested in uh, uh, joining us here, it's, it's a really great culture, uh, hiring in positions in uh, the Bay Area and San Diego and elsewhere. Uh, so look us up on you know jobs.intel.com and yeah because we uh, are looking forward to you know enabling data scientists for the next generation of deep learning. 
All right, sounds great. Well, Jason, thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Take care. Bye.